Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. Lovely to have you with us. Um, we are looking at the last two chapters of Ezra and I am joined by Helen and by Juliet. So we've seen so far that a group of exiles return at the beginning of the book of Ezra and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Then there's a 60 year period in which worship becomes half-hearted and almost superstitious. And so God sends a smaller group back to Jerusalem from Babylon under the guidance of Ezra to establish worship that's based on the word of God. Then in chapters nine and 10, we begin to see the effect that the word of God being back in the center of the life of the people of God has. But these are difficult chapters as we begin to wrestle with a holy God and an unholy people. So my first question, ladies, is what's the big sin in question here and why is it such a big deal? So um, the big the big sin is that the people have started to intermarry with um, other peoples that live in that area. And they've not just married with them, but they've also married with their abominations. So their sinful practices, their idolatry, they've taken the people that they've married, their practices and um, are starting to do them themselves. And so it's a real problem of holiness and a problem of um, idolatry. Yeah, and holiness means set apartness doesn't it and Israel hadn't maintained that set apartness by marrying these um foreign wives and that these foreign women basically had led them yeah to idolatry and the worship of other gods but it's and it's also a sort of a direct um breakage of the laws of the rules that God laid down in Deuteronomy 7 um where they're supposed to drive out, the Israelites were supposed to drive out other nations. Uh, and God directly says um, in chapter 7, verse 2, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And then the second half of that bit says, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. And this is not just a sin of just the Israelites, the priests and the Levites have been involved in this as well. And so it's really, um, yeah, it's within all levels of their, um, in the leaders and in the people of um, who are meant to be uh, keeping themselves pure as to intercede for the people with God. And it's sad, isn't it? You know, after they've um, they've made the they've started rebuilding the temple, they deliberately tried to keep themselves separate from the other nations. You know, no, we don't need you to help us build it. Um, yes, we're going to focus on our sacrificial system. We're going to focus on our purity. And then here we are, however many years later, and they have absolutely done what they had set out not to do. <laughs> So I'm just reading this now with a very 21st century Western lens and somebody might say, easily say to me, well, is God racist then? What, what's the problem? Is it? How would you answer that sort of charge 
that this isn't God being racist and only loving one nation. Not in this passage. There are previous examples of different people that have become part of the people of God. Um, you've looked together at Ruth and she was a Moabite. Um, and also one of the descendants of David, King David. Um, and she, rather than keeping her uh, gods and idols, she took on the God of Israel, um, Yahweh, to be her God. Um, so we can see, you know, this is not just about their ethnicity, but actually it's very much to do with their abominations about their worship. And I would say um, at the end of chapter 10, we can see that it's not an issue of racism because actually it's not all the wives who end up um, being separated and sent back. Um, a lot of the stuff that I read said that actually the ones who were truly converted were able to stay with the Israelites. It was only the ones who refused to ple basically pledge allegiance to the God of Israel who were sent back. So I think we can counteract that racism argument with this very book of Ezra by looking at the end of the book. Great. So God's a God that cares about our hearts and our worship, not about the colour of our skin or where we come from. Are we, are we all agreed on that? We are agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Great. OK, I'd love us to look now at Ezra's response in verses three and four. And how is that challenging for us? So first of all, how does he respond and how is that challenging? Yeah, he really goes into mourning, doesn't he? It's almost like it's almost like somebody's died um he tears his clothing he pulls his hair out and you know I sat down and it says um he sat down appalled you know that's really strong language isn't it he's really devastated and I think it's interesting that he goes into mourning he's not just angry at these people he doesn't just go what are you doing you're you know you idiots it's a uh, sort of um yeah, he, he's very much involved in the in the process, isn't he? It's not just you, you Israelites, you've done this thing. It's we have done this thing. And it's stuck in Nehemiah. Nehemiah also responds to the people's sin, but he tears their hair out. But here, <laughs> Ezra tears his own hair out. And it's also just like he's in with their sin their sin is almost his as a community and he feels that pain so it's a very visual sign of something that's an inward um experience i think that um collectiveness that that sort of thing of it not just being ezra is demonstrated in his prayer a bit later on in the chapter where he's like i am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. You know, you, it, it, it was a real challenge to me reading this, how often when people in my family or, you know, my fellow Christians sin, how often I'm like, oh, their sin, their issue. Oh, I need to pray for them in that. And how actually Ezra here is like, no, it's it's actually all of us. Like this is a, a collective issue. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's a real challenge, isn't it, to that individualistic way that we often live our Christian lives. And almost we like to define ourselves against other people's sin as, oh, well, I'm not like that. But it's so challenging, isn't it, how the sin of, yeah, these people that have married massively impacts Ezra and he counts himself as part of that rather than separate to it. Yeah, it's really challenging, isn't it? And and culturally, when I talked about this with a friend of mine where I am in West Africa, they were like, yeah, of course, the sin of one person stains the family. It's the honour-shame thing. And, you know, and so when you begin to understand that collective culture a bit better, you can begin to understand, I think, also the events of chapter seven, uh, chapter 10 a bit better. You know, you have to have the, the honour restored um, because one one person affects the status of the whole family in the eyes of the rest of the community. And we might we might think as Westerners that that is ridiculous, but it is in fact the reality for most of the rest of the world. But it, actually, it's not too. We can relate to it, can't we? Because if if somebody in a church in a church setting sins and falls dramatically. It, the whole like especially where we are our whole community is judged together and so if there was a dramatic um thing happened at church that was sinful then lots of people would just it would affect the credibility of the whole witness of the church wouldn't it so actually I think in a community we do stand or fall together don't we at some level and if we're living for Jesus together yeah I, I think it, I don't think it's yeah, I think the, the the thing that came to my mind specifically was the sexual scandals that have rocked, you know, the Church of England or the Catholic Church. And so many unbelievers just dismiss the whole gospel because they think it can't be true. I would agree with that to some extent um, in terms of when you look at the overarching church thing. But I would argue that within churches that um, it would be a different, it would be different that individualism is very much more there, I would argue, on the whole within churches. Um, and that, yes, to the outsider looking in, that the church would be tainted, the witness would be tainted. Um, but I would argue that within churches or within families, that the culture is very different. Mm. I think mainly in terms of the grief that is felt, probably you know like people wouldn't necessarily if someone else did something wrong they wouldn't feel that pain to themselves like they've also been a part of that they would think oh that person's done that wrong and how can we make ourselves separate from that person rather than thinking actually this is like affecting me personally and like us as a family I guess quite (laughs) I guess we've got to dig into what the root of Ezra's pain is isn't it and I guess it's the Mm. it's because the glory of God is being affected isn't it and God's purpose God's purposes for the rest of salvation history require a holy people don't they that are set apart for him so that the Messiah can come and enter into that and so I guess that's the other problem isn't it we we don't really care when it comes down to it as much as we should about the name of God and the glory of God. And, you know, I guess in our church setting in East Manchester, um, the individual conduct of church members affects the way that God's perceived, doesn't he, in that community. And so actually, if somebody sins, that affects God's glory and the way God's seen. And 
we I guess the sad reality is we don't care as much about that as we should yeah I was um a, f a few weeks ago at work I was um <laughs> I was bad tempered towards a colleague and I apologized afterwards but when I got home I realized actually what I did was I was a bad witness for God not that I it wasn't so much like I'm condemned by my sin, but actually I am the only Christian witness in that department. And the way I acted was not a good reflection of Jesus living in me, <laughs> you know, and yeah. And in the moment, the self-justification was, was there, not the mortification mm. of how I reacted and could have witnessed. Yeah. I think that struck me um in Ezra's prayer that there's no like oh like um explanation of why we did this or he just says straight out you know we have sinned and our guilt is great and <laughs> just totally taking hold and uh being accountable rather than say yeah saying oh I was tired or mm -hmm. oh we you know <laughs> I, I, I didn't eat lunch yeah. <laughs> I had a bad day <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and the other thing about the prayer that really struck me was that he you know in, in verse eight but now you know he talks about all their sins we sin he's basically like we just sin from the start to up till now we have sinned our guilt is great you know it's our sins that have caused all these things these things that happen that exile and he's like and then in verse eight but now for a brief moment the lord our god has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place like this is our chance he's given you know he's been so gracious towards us despite the fact we don't deserve it let's let's not be idiots let's take advantage of his grace while we still can um you can almost feel his frustration with with the people of Israel, not and, and I'm including him within that, you know. But now, our God, what can we say after this? In verse ten, for we have forsaken your commands. You know, we don't deserve this grace. You continue to give us grace. You are so merciful, and he continuously talks about, doesn't he? God's generosity towards Israel, mm. um, and yeah. I think um, that was a real challenge to me in my prayers of repentance. Yeah, just talking about God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. And, and you know, the prayer in verse 14, it ends with a clear recognition that God has every reason to ditch the Israelites, basically. Isn't it? He's got like, what does it, it says, um, shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with with us to destroy us leaving us no remnant or survivor like that just complete desolation at the sinfulness and yet that glimmer of hope that recognition actually you are still so gracious to us help us to not lose this opportunity and I guess that's the challenge of, for me that was the challenge of this prayer like it's such a model isn't it of genuine confession and repentance but I guess he's he's able to wrestle with the depths of their sin because he's so confident of God's grace and mercy. And so those things go together, don't they? He doesn't he doesn't need to shy away or make it better than it is. He's he's able to look hard at the reality of how what a mess they've made. But he also then looks hard at God's mercy and grace and 
um, rejoices in that. And I was like, oh, that's such a good model, isn't it, of what repentance looks like? Because we end up loving God more because we see the depths of our sin, but yet the the fact that his mercy is enough. Um, mm. Rather than, I guess, so often we're quickly, we're quick to move on. We don't want to dwell, do we, in our sins or the, or even the heart um, motives underneath our sin. And so we don't really change or we're not, we don't really allow God's grace to change us. Whereas, yeah, I just thought, oh, this is such a great model. Um, Okay, chapter 10. What happens in those first five verses of chapter 10, ladies? And I just want us to look as well at the sort of, Verse one and verse six, I think those bookends are quite important in how we see this, these five verses. So, yeah, first of all, what happens? So, um, so in the middle of Ezra's praying and confessing and weeping, <laughs> um, someone called Shekinah makes a suggestion that they divorce their wives and um, send them home with any children and that they make an oath to do this together as a community and yeah sandwiched on either side is just a remind a reminder of ezra's posture before god he's um continuing to mourn and he in verse six he carries out a complete fast of not even having bread and um water and and again showing his grief with uh, the whole situation yeah i was struck by esther doesn't call uh, ezra sorry doesn't call them to do this does he he prays and i and so i get i just got the definite feeling that it god as god answered god ezra's prayers didn't he through bringing this repentance on the people so it wasn't like ezra pulled their hair out like his buddy's going to do later but he just really intercedes before God and repents and God uses those prayers, doesn't it, to move his people to see the seriousness of what they've done. And, you know, it says, doesn't it, Ezra's, as Ezra's praying, a great assembly of people gather, I guess, under conviction of sin. And so I, I'm an activist, naturally, and this is so helpful to me that when something's really bad, prayer's the place to go, not even with my children, you know, I'm a lot more tempted to give them a good telling off and rebuke rather than just to <laughs> say that God changes their hearts. I was just going to say that the it's almost like the people almost seem a little lost, like they want Ezra to act first in some ways. Like, you know, he's the established leader. He's deep in prayer. He's mourning. Um, I want... I didn't read this anywhere, but I was just wondering, you know, do they even trust themselves to act rightly? given the um how the mistakes that they've made in the past and you know the pre through prayer and presumably god's word this reading the scriptures um they've recognized that there's an issue and they're starting to repent do they trust themselves is this a good thing ezra um you know verse three is just this little glimmer of hope all is not lost do you think this is the right way to go because they say in verse four don't they rise up this matter is in your hands we will support you so take courage and do it you know you are you know god's law you are clearly a man of god help us correct this wrong that we have done 
that's a beautiful heart posture isn't it like you're yeah like tell us help us we need that sort of community again it's that community spirit isn't it we need help here and Ezra you're the man who knows God best yeah because and at the time you know divorce was permitted in Israel under really serious circumstances but it was permitted um and the Jews, including the leaders, had basically taken advantage of it. I read something that said that their broken marriages were rife and that actually Jewish men were often abandoning their Jewish wives for foreign women. Um, and and so it wasn't like a, you know, they were almost saying, let's use a, an evil to cure an evil in some way. And so it's it's not a, it seems like a quick fix answer as we read it but the reality is it really wasn't it was yeah it was tricky well thank you for bringing up the fact that it was tricky Helen because um there's um there's a uh, there's a different opinion now about what happens and I think different bible scholars would think differently and I thought different scattered team members thought differently but I've heard this morning that there might have been some movement so, um, yeah, I want to go to you first, Juliet, and can you just talk us through this journey? Because when we started studying Esther about six weeks ago, Juliet... I think had... you mean Ezra. Sorry, Ezra. Um, Juliet had a lot to say about these last two chapters and how outraged she was by them. But I'll let you tell your story, Juliet. What's, um, tell us about that journey. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, I think scholars are quite mixed. So it's good to appreciate that actually there's no, like there's two main views that are held. And I think some people, yeah. So I don't know if there's a clear, this is the right answer and this is the wrong answer. So I used to hold a view that they so actually let's look on a broader scale so this narrative text um is just saying what's happening and sometimes in scripture that's not necessarily a prescriptive of this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing and so it's helpful to look in the context of the book what the author seems to be saying because the author is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what they're saying is, should be what we hold to. Um, and then it's also helpful just to see in um, all of scripture as well and seeing if other places confirm that or uh, speak other things um, into that. And so I think I used to hold a view that what Ezra and the others did might not be might be a bit rash and might not be very <laughs> considered um just as a way of um and maybe they overinterpreted the mosaic law and chose to do that in um in a way that they thought right but was actually not right um but i think on further investigation i think ezra is portraying this positively as a way of people um, maintaining uh, holiness before God. And um, so I, I, I have been convinced by more reading that I think, um, yeah, what they, what they did was what they thought was right following Mosaic law. But I don't think 
what they did then is prescriptive to what we should do now. Um, because since this book, there's been a lot of other books written and Paul speaks quite a lot on the subject of divorce. Jesus speaks quite a lot on the subject of divorce. And I think we need to take those words very seriously when we think about these kind of things in application for our lives. I was listening to a helpful podcast last night as I went to sleep on Ezra. And the thing that really stuck out to me was he, he was saying so often in scripture, it's written for us, but it's not about us. And, you know, there's a lot we can learn here about devotion to God and living wholeheartedly for him and not selling out to the culture around us. But this isn't saying divorce your wife if she's not a Christian. So, yeah, I find that that's just a really helpful thing reading all of scripture, isn't it? It's written for you, but be careful not to read yourself in where you're not there. Uh yeah, I think we need to be really clear here, don't we? And and actually uh, about people who are married to non-Christians. And actually, I listened to two excellent sermons by a guy called um, Kevin DeYoung. Uh, you can just Google Kevin DeYoung Ezra sermons and um, his sermons from about 10 years ago pop up. Um, and he speaks really well on... Uh, these passages and really kindly on these passages as well to people who um, are non-Christians but get married who sorry who are Christians who married non-Christians or people who became Christians whilst already married to a non-Christian um, yeah just I'd really recommend listening to them I think we need to say clearly that this pass like you said you know this passage is not about saying if you are married to a non-christian you need to divorce them like Juliet said though it's really clear in the new testament um god's view on divorce um and so it's important to say that this was something that happened at the time for a very particular very tiny and weak jewish community in which intermarriage rapidly led to identity compromise and um desperate sin rather than um, something we should be thinking about actively doing ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, can I, and in so specifically in 1 Corinthians 7, um, verses 12 to 16, it speaks directly to this. It says, if a believer's spouse does not trust in Jesus, he should not divorce the unbelieving spouse if he or she is willing to stay married and allow the believer to practice the faith. And one last thing to say about the, the women who were divorced in this passage is that they weren't just, the women and children weren't just sort of sent out. You know, it took months for them to decide what to do. It was a really deliberate process. And the ones that are listed are the ones who, who again, we, we've already said, did not turn their hearts to the Lord. And they were not just abandoned. It's likely that they went back to their father's houses. Uh uh, you know, we saw that in Ruth, didn't we? How Naomi told Ruth and Orpah to go back to their father's houses. It's likely to have been the same principle here. Hmm. And some some uh, commentators have said that actually it was a kindness um, to let them go back to their homes because some may have committed sins that would result in capital punishment or exile. And instead, they're just told to be separate and to return to their families. And that is um, mercy and a grace to them rather than um, a, yeah, a complete punishment.
Yeah, thanks, ladies. It's hard, isn't it? Because, yeah. But I think the key thing that has helped me process it is the issue at stake here is God's holiness and the fact that his people need to reflect that. And at this point in salvation history, it really mattered that that people group were preserved so that Jesus could come. And um, actually, it's a matter of salvation history. And that's how important it was that there was um, a, a pure Jewish people that were kept so that um, Jesus could be born into that line. Um, my last question is, how do we see in Ezra here um, <clears throat> him reflecting Jesus? In what ways do we see little pictures of Jesus in Ezra in these passages? I found it, it really struck me that um, here Ezra's, um, the people's sin was taken on by Ezra, for saying our sin, and for Jesus, our sin, all our sin was taken on by him. And I think there's a little bit of, yeah, that like foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. But actually, Jesus pays for our sin and he's paying for all the sins of the Israelites then of all that they did. Um, and what a yeah, beautiful thing that is. I guess the other thing is that, you know, we know now, don't we, Jesus is at the right hand of the father interceding for us and so even though he dealt with our sin um finally at the cross he's still pleading our case in the ear of the father and i just think ezra's such a beautiful picture of doing that isn't it he takes the sin he feels it so personally and he pleads before god and so yeah i yeah i think that's also a beautiful picture of jesus isn't it right now at the right hand of the father interceding for us um yeah. And I think I think until we see him, well, I know that until we see him, we, we will keep on sinning. And so like Ezra's prayer is just a beautiful one that we can use personally for admitting our sin and also just claiming God's grace and mercy towards us mm. over and over again. And yeah, that's beautiful like we won't try and deliberately sin but like it's it's as much as we try our our bodies are not made perfect and um yeah we do what we don't want to do and mm. yeah and i think you know um within this within ezra's prayer and the actions of the israelites and things there's a thing that speaks to us about repentance and how you know um rather than just sort of indulging our feelings of brokenness and absolutely we we revel in God's grace but repentance like does also require quite a deep commitment to change but that God and Jesus goes through that with us we are not alone and our repentance our actions that we do as an act of repentance does not will never be perfect and it doesn't need to be perfect because Jesus is perfect but it is that our hearts and our minds and our actions are changed by that deep conviction of sin that we have. Yeah, thanks, ladies. There's lots to be challenged about in this chapter, aren't there? Isn't there? But um, we are looking forward to starting Nehemiah next week. So, um, yeah, we look forward to joining you then. Um, bye. Bye. bye.